Welcome to Russian History Retold, Episode 141, The Crimean War, Part 2. Last time, I talked about how I put together the podcast from the idea for a topic to how I research and produce each one. Now let's get back to the series on the Crimean War. Now, two podcasts ago, I gave you a background on the history of the Crimea. While important, the land of Crimea was not the catalyst for the war that was to come. Its location on the Black Sea, with the warm water ports that Russia so desperately wanted access to, was a major contributing factor, but not the main issue. While researching this conflict, my two primary sources, but not only ones, are Orlando Figg's monumental work, The Crimean War, The History, and Crimea and the Great Crimean War, 1854-1856, by Trevor Royal. The latter, while extremely well-written and filled with the kind of facts any historian would drool over, fails to convey the emotional aspects, quite like Professor Figgs does in his book. Both, though, are highly recommended if you want to learn more about the Crimean conflict. On the first page of his introduction, Professor Figgs brings home the tragedy of the Crimean War and lays a powerful groundwork with which will help us to fully grasp the enormity of this struggle. In today's world, we see countless shows on television and the movies about World War I, World War II, as well as the conflicts in Korea and Vietnam, not to mention Afghanistan, Iraq, and the Israeli-Arab Wars. But we seem to have cast the Crimean War to the outposts of history, forgetting how it was this war that would set the stage for the great worldwide conflicts of the 20th century. This is why I'd like to read the first page and a half of Orlando Figg's book. Quote, In the parish church of Witchhampton, in Dorset, there is a memorial to commemorate five soldiers from this peaceful village who fought and died in the Crimean War. The inscription reads, Died in the service of their country, their bodies are in the Crimea. May their souls rest in peace. M-D-C-C-C-L-I-V or 1854. In the communal graveyard of Herricourt in southeastern France, there's a gravestone with the names of the nine men from the area who died in the Crimea. Ils sont morts pour la patrie. Amis, nous nous reverons un jour. At the base of the memorial, somebody has placed two cannonballs, one with the name of the Malakoff Bastion captured by the French during the siege of Sevastopol, the Russian naval base in the Crimea, and the other with the name Sebastopol. Thousands of French and British soldiers lie in unmarked and long-neglected graves in the Crimea. In Sevastopol itself, there are hundreds of memorials, many of them in the military cemetery, Bratskoy Kladbyshche, one of the three huge burial grounds established by the Russians during the siege, where a staggering 127,583 men were killed in defense of the town lay buried. The officers have individual graves with their names and regiments, but the ordinary soldiers are buried in mass graves of 50 or 100 men. Among the Russians, there are soldiers who had come from Serbia, Bulgaria, or Greece, their co-religionists in the Eastern Church, in response to the Tsar's call for the Orthodox to defend their faith. 
one small plaque, barely visible in the long grass, where fifteen soldiers lay underground, commemorated their heroic sacrifice during the defense of Sevastopol in 1854-5. They died for their fatherland, for Tsar, and for God. Elsewhere in Sevastopol, there are eternal flames and monuments to the unknown and uncounted soldiers who died fighting for the town. It is estimated that a quarter of a million Russian soldiers, sailors, and civilians are buried in mass graves in Sevastopol's three military cemeteries. Figs, as usual, captured the essence of the conflict surrounding Sevastopol. Here, I'd like to share some statistics on the size of the forces and the number of casualties for the totality of the war. On the French, British, Ottoman, and Sardinian side, with a smattering of Swiss and Slavs, there were approximately 1 million men in the field, with 40% being British, I mean, excuse me, 40% being French, 30% Ottoman, and 25% being British. On the Russian side, rough estimates here, but they're put at about 700 to 750,000 men into the fray. As for casualties, the numbers are staggering. It isn't just the numbers, but it's how the men died that makes this conflict so horrific. On the Russian side, we have 80,000 dying in action, 40,000 dying of wounds resulting from the fighting, and here's the appalling number, an additional 100,000 died of disease. 45% of all deaths came from disease, and not the fighting itself. That, in and of itself, should tell you that the suffering that went on in Crimea was almost unfathomable. Having said all of this, the numbers I just gave you may be on the very low side, as the Tsarist regime under Nicholas I did not want to have the people back home made aware of what the real numbers were. According to Orlando Figs, the number he saw from the medical department of the Ministry of War puts the casualty number much higher, at 450,015, more than double what they told the Russian people. Others believe the real number to be higher still, closer to 600,000. Whatever the number, it was appalling. On the other side, we have equally horrific numbers. The French lost 10,000 men to combat, 20,000 succumbed to their wounds, but 60,000 died of disease. The British saw 2,800 die in battle, 2,000 because of wounds, and 16,000 to disease. As for the Ottoman Turks, we only have raw estimates of their casualties as they didn't classify them as did the other combatants. The, the number of their casualties ranged from a low of 100,000 to a high of 175,000. This war, though, did not just see a loss of soldiers' lives, there were staggeringly large numbers of civilians killed. The real numbers we may never know, but some estimates put it into the hundreds of thousands. To quote Professor Figs again, Nobody has counted the civilian casualties, victims of the shelling, people starved to death in besieged towns, populations devastated by disease spread by the armies, entire communities wiped down in the massacres, and organized campaigns of ethnic cleansing that occupied the fighting in the Caucasus, the Balkans, and the Crimea. This was the first total war, a 19th century version of the wars of our own age involving civilians 
and humanitarian crises. I hope by now you have a good idea about the size and nature of the Crimean War. Now it's time to discuss why in God's name did this all have to happen? What triggered this mass conflagration that led to so much suffering and bloodshed? Its beginnings are twofold, where one can be said to have had its start with a proverbial fist fight termed deadly. The location and date of said fight, you might ask? It was on Good Friday in 1846 in Jerusalem, as a calvary inside the church of the Holy Sepulchre, where the cross that bore Jesus was said to have been put into the rock. So who were the combatants, and why did they fight? Over the previous number of decades, animosities between the Latin Catholic Church and the numerous Orthodox churches grew. They debated who had control of what holy sites and who would pay for the repairs and improvements. Of course, the city of Jerusalem was under control of the Ottoman Empire. When the Turks were a power to be reckoned with, what they said controlled what happened. Whomever was the highest bidder would likely have the most control. The pilgrimages to the Holy Land were a lucrative business for the Ottoman Empire, and they milked it for all they could. Want to guess where the majority of the pilgrims came from? If you guessed Russia, give yourselves a pat on the back. In actuality, the vast majority of Christians who came to Jerusalem and the other holy cities of the Bible were Russians. Both peasant and nobility alike came. But as with all things in Russia, the nobles had far more lavish accommodations with the peasants sometimes living in absolute squalid conditions. The Russian Orthodox followers were also much more fervent in their beliefs than the Catholics were and far more interested in ritualism than their Latin brethren, and way more than Protestants. The Catholics and Protestants viewed the Orthodox rituals with disdain, and thought them to border on the side of barbaric and superstitious. As for the Catholics, historian Alexander Kinglake was quoted as saying, The closest thing to the likeness of a pilgrim which the Latin Church could supply was often a mere French tourist with a journal and a theory and a plan of writing a book. On this particular Good Friday, both the Latin and the Orthodox were celebrating on the same day, which happens once every four years because of the difference in their calendar, Julian or Gregorian. Easter is also what is known as a movable feast, as it can occur using the Gregorian calendar anywhere from a Sunday between March 22nd and April 28th. According to the Julian calendar, Easter can fall between April 4th and May 8th, due to that 13-day difference between calendars. This was a year, 1846, where the dates collided. When the Latin priests arrived with their white cloths to cover the altar, they found the Greeks had already gotten there before them and had adorned the altar with their embroidered silk. The Latins demanded to see the Greeks' firmin, which was a decree from the Sultan in Constantinople, allowing them to be first. The Greek countered with the demand to see the Latins' firmin, then the fist fight broke out. At first, and this is a story that you just can't make up, the priests began to brawl. Then the monks jumped in, followed by the pilgrims from both sides. Mayhem ensued, and pretty soon things escalated to the use of, as Figs puts it, quote, crucifixes, candlesticks, chalices, lamps, and incense burners, and even bits of wood they tore from the sacred shrines. The fighting continued with knives and pistols smuggled into the Holy Sepulchre by worshippers of either side. By the time the church was cleared by Mehmet Pasha's guards, more than 40 people lay dead on the floor. 
Obviously, not what you would expect from Christians following the word of Jesus. After that, the governments of France, Russia, and the Neapolitan and Sardinian governments were in a spending frenzy to outdo each other in decorating the Church of the Holy Sepulchre. They began to battle over all of the holy sites in Jerusalem, as I mentioned earlier. Now they were doing it in earnest, with the Turks absolutely bewildered by the bickering, but more than happy to take the lavish bribes sent their way. In the book, A History of Russia, by professors Ryazanovsky and Steinberg, they claim that the setup for the Crimean War was Tsar Nicholas I's belief that he and his Russia were the gendarme of Europe to protect the status quo. Russia helped put down a number of rebellions throughout the tumultuous revolutionary years of 1848-49. They were one to be the protectors of orthodoxy, but also the protectors of the status quo of Europe. Now, Nicholas sent in over 200,000 troops into Hungary to suppress a revolt there, as well as loaning 6 million rubles to Austria to help prop up their government. People throughout Europe began to resent Russian meddling in their affairs. But Nicholas was oblivious to this, and in the many diplomatic letters we have access to, we see his incredulous mistaken belief that his policies had international backing, especially the British and the Austrians. As Steinberg and Rezunovsky put it, quote, In fact, the international standing of the gendarme of Europe and the country he ruled was much stronger in appearance than in reality. Liberalism and nationalism, although defeated, were by no means dead, and they carried European public opinion from Poland and Hungary to France and England. Even the countries usually friendly to the Tsar complained of his interference with their interest, as in the case of Prussia, or at least resented his overbearing solicitude, as was true of Austria. On the other hand, Nicholas I himself, in the opinion of some specialists, reacted to his success by coming more blunt, uncompromising, doctrinaire, and domineering than ever before. The stage was set for a debacle. Now, coming back to the religious tensions. While the religious issues were not the ultimate reason why the Crimean War started, it was the underlying motivation for the hostilities between the French and the Russians. There were a lot of animosity. There was just tremendous animosity between the two because of the Napoleonic Wars and Russia's defeat of the now King of France's Napoleon III's cousin, Napoleon Bonaparte. That and Napoleon III kind of became the opposite of Nicholas. He believed that he was the protector of Catholic Christians in opposition to the Orthodox. The tensions seen on that fateful Good Friday of 1846 began to be played out in much higher places. The Austrians, French, Russians, and the Vatican began to put resources into Jerusalem, like establishing churches, schools, hostels, chapels, and marketplaces. The Russians were the most prolific, though likely due to the large number of pilgrims that kept on coming from all over, many by foot, climbing over the Caucasus through Anatolia and Syria. What the British and French did not understand, nor did they attempt to understand, were the deep-seated emotions the Russians had about the holy city and its shrines. Anyone who has been to a Russian Orthodox Easter would know that ritual is very important. But this was not understood by the rest of the world. According to an Anglican, Baron Curzon, when he saw a ritual Orthodox ceremony, it was in his words, quote, 
a scene of disorder and profanation. Of the pilgrims, he said that they were almost in a state of nudity, danced about with frantic gestures, yelling and screaming as if they were possessed. I can assure you that this was a highly overstated and misleading comment meant to incite negative opinions about the Orthodox faith. Nicholas, for his part, deeply believed himself the high protector of the Orthodox by divine right, and that he had to retake Constantinople and Jerusalem as God's chosen one. The West saw only an expansionistic country looking at a warm-water port. One man who began to fuel the fire of suspicion was William Young, the British consul in Palestine and Syria, with his writings to Lord Palmerston at the Foreign Office of Great Britain, starting in 1839. He wrote in the 1940s that there were, quote, Russian agents in Jerusalem, and that he believed they were preparing for, quote, Russian conquest of the Holy Lands. He also reported that, quote, the pilgrims of Russia have been heard to speak openly of the period being at hand when this country will be under the Russian government. The British were concerned about the expansionism because their empire was almost at its peak and they didn't need any competitors, especially one as big as Russia. On top of this, people didn't understand the strange country to the east. To many, it was an oriental power with European-like leaders. This great mistrust and misunderstanding was to lead to numerous blunders by the British and the French in their dealings. As I mentioned before, for the Russians, Nicholas I first had this misconception that the British and Austrians were on his side against both the Ottomans and the French as part of the 1815 Concert of Europe. What the Tsar didn't take into account was that Austria was a Catholic country and had no interest in helping a country that was right near its border expand any further. And this is despite the Russians having saved Austria in 1848, during that revolutionary period. Nicholas misread the British as well, thinking they were still mortal enemies of the French. But that had ended with the ascension of Lord Palmerston to the head of the Foreign Office. He wanted a closer relationship with France, and this worked out as well, as Napoleon III had a very pro-British foreign policy when, and was eager not to displease the British government, whose friendship he saw as important to France. A couple other items I'd like to bring up here. There were a few treaties between the Russians and the Turks, causing tensions in the area to mount. The first, signed in 1829, was the Treaty of Andrianople, which gave control of the mouth of the Danube, the eastern Black Sea coast from the Sea of Azov to Poti, Georgia, and eastern Armenia. It basically allowed Russian merchant ships to have free access to the Black Sea, which meant it could easily head out to the Mediterranean. It also implied that if the Ottomans ever threatened this right, Russia could intercede militarily. It gave Russia the rights to, quote, immediate reprisals against the Ottoman Empire. This concerned Europe, as they considered any access to the Mediterranean by Russia an affront to their safety and trade monopolies. The next one was the Treaty of Unkayar Skelisi in 1833, when Russia aided the Turks in their battle against the Egyptian rebel Mehmet Ali. It supposedly stated that Turkey would close the Dardanelles to foreign warships in times of war, and that Russian warships would be allowed to go as far as the Bosphorus, which is where Constantinople was. 
This was only found in the Russian version of the treaty, and not something that the Ottomans believed they had signed onto. According to John Ladon, this was, quote, an attempt to transform the Turkish core area into a Russian protectorate and to project Russian naval power from the Black Sea into the Mediterranean. Now, this sets the stage for the next podcast. We'll begin the march up to the war and beginning of the conflict in the Crimea. Well, I hope you enjoyed today's podcast. I'd like to thank all of you who have supported this podcast by making donations at the blog site, RussianRulersHistory.com. What I'm going to be doing in the coming days and weeks, I'm going to be putting all the books that I've used that I recommend to you to read on the blog site with links. So if you want to purchase them, be another way of supporting the podcast and showing you how and what I use to come up with these uh, retellings of Russian history. Also, don't forget to join us on Facebook where the lively discussions continue. You can always stop by and ask a question, leave a comment, or make a suggestion. So now, as always, до свидания и спасибо большое.